Welcome to the audio commentaries for Electric Bastion Land. This is episode 5, where I will be discussing how to run Electric Bastion Land and what guidance made it into the book. I'm Chris McDowell and today I'm joined by a pioneer of RPG YouTube, the creature known as the Questing Beast and the creator of pocket-sized sensations Maze Rats and Knave, as well as the official ambassador to the world of Jim Henson RPGs. He's the voice behind the famous hands, Ben Milton. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so hopefully some uh, the, the people who are listening to this will at least know you from um, the, the wildly popular YouTube channel and um, your uh, Maze Rats, which I, I still just see it mentioned every single day. Uh, Maze Rats on Nave, I can't go a day without hearing about one of them. Um, in a sort of recommendation thread or something like that, but um, but what's your what's your history or relationship to Into the Odd or Electric Bastion Land? So Into the Odd was uh, a really big influence on Maze Rats. If you go back to the very first edition of Maze Rats, it was actually an Into the Odd hack. So in um, uh, additional materials, uh, which was one of the first supplements for Into the Odd. I had made a fantasy hack of Into the Odd, essentially, that I called Maze Rats. And if you find it in that book, it's, um, it's yeah, it's just straight up Into the Odd. I just added spells, I had some random tables for making random monsters and items. And then eventually it kind of evolved into more of its own thing. But Into the Odd was a big inspiration from the beginning. And I think we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later on, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely gone both ways where when I, I remember looking at the the sort of release version of Maze Rats and a lot of it very much inspired what I decided to do with um, Electric Bastion Land. Mm. So, um, so yeah, it's fun to be able to bounce that um, that sort of influence back and forth. I think uh, it's been a nice sort of a trade-off there. Um, so without any further ado, uh, we'll get on to the main section of the commentary. So the first thing I wanted to talk with you about, um, as somebody who makes very rules-like games yourself, um, do you think rules-like games are easier to run? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, One of the main reasons that I uh, write and run these types of games is because I'm a teacher and a lot of my uh, DMing is for kids, like ages 10 to 12 usually. Hmm. Um, and we have relatively short periods of time to run games in. So my goal is to have games that are very easy to run, but also very easy to teach because a long-term goal is to get the kids to start running their own games. And if you hand them like, you know, fifth edition D and D, then the assumption is that they have to learn the whole book. And that's pretty intimidating for a lot of kids. Um, but if I hand them, you know, maze rats or into the odd, which I did for a while, then, you know, the rules on how to run the game are one page long and they can just they can pick that up really, really fast. And in terms of as the the GM as well, um, it's I've, I've heard arguments on both sides that um, some people find the framework of something like Fifth Edition um, helps them run the game, whereas they find the simplicity almost it's too much openness for the for the for the GM. Mm. Um, they need the sort of the structure. And and one of the things I've heard is that the idea that. Um, something like fifth edition that there's there's a sort of idea out there that it's hard to run it badly where do you sort of stand on that argument 
I know, I'm not really sure. I haven't run much fifth edition, uh, to be honest. I, I don't know if it's really hard to run either of them badly, um, but it is, it's more like even in fifth edition, which has a lot of reduced modifiers and there's less you know fiddly bits, um, <clears throat> there's still an element where you, you feel like you have to keep track of a lot of things in order to make it work well. Um, whereas, yeah. in, whereas in really rules light games, like I feel like that pressure is off. And because it's rules light, there's more of an assumption that the game master can just make a reasonable call and go with it. Um, and my experience with running with kids who are just running their very first games seems to bear that out. And I think that's... So The for each of these episodes of the commentary, I've tried to sort of... Uh, I've tried to ask people that I sort of enjoy talking to, but also um, people that are particularly relevant for each of the subjects. And I, I really wanted to get you for this one because it's the the sort of when you've not got so much mechanical framework for the for the gm to to latch onto i think the advice that you give on running the game is it just becomes even more crucial mm-hmm. um because it's you know it's proportionally it's it's a lot more of the content of the book than the rules like there's more there's more advice in electric bastion than there are there are rules and um with maze rats um i was sort of flicking through it uh, just before uh, we, we I called you today, and it's this this advice at the back. This sort of it's just one column on prepping a session, and it's one column on running. The, oh, sorry, two columns on on running the game. I think that just really nicely kind of ex- explains how to run the game well without getting bogged down in here's here's when you should give experience points, and here is how you should build an encounter of the appropriate level and mm-hmm. here is the amount of it's you haven't you haven't got to explain a lot of numbers and a lot of mechanical things so you've sort of you've been able to focus on the the um the sort of broader aspects of, of running a game and yeah they, they were sort of a a big influence on the book really yeah i think i think a big thing is uh principles rather than rules yeah so absolutely. um yeah um into the auto was an influence on that but also things like apocalypse world where it's, it's stepped back and it tried to take down these broad GMing principles and boil them down to something easy to remember and easy to 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 use in play and just hammering those home so that the DM can sort of take the place of all of those complicated rules because they know generally what they're trying to get out of it. And so they can drive things in that direction and make good rulings if you just say the dm has to make rulings oftentimes that's unhelpful because you know what is a good ruling what does that look like um so training people to be able to see that uh speeds up play and makes everything easier i think so it it sort of goes back to i mean another sort of nice coincidence is i I used to work as a teacher uh in a previous life um myself in in secondary schools and obviously you work in it's, it's uh primary age so sort of you said about 10 years old your your class yeah 10, 11. Yeah. So one thing that we used to have there, um, it's like a weird parallel where when you have hard rules in place, I don't know if you find this with the children that you teach, but when you have a hard rule in place, the children will do everything to to operate right up until the line of that rule. I, I did have some especially challenging children, so maybe this is just the class that I had. But, you know, if, if, you, have a, if you have a rule, it's very easy to skirt around that and still be... Um, still not be following the sort of intent of the rule but we found that if we had principles instead and if one of the principles was for instance be kind to each other 
we, we found that the children responded a lot better to that because you can highlight what makes good behavior to make 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 to represent being kind to each other if somebody's not being kind you don't have to have a specific rule for the one thing that they've just done you can say this isn't kind for this reason and it's sort of it's sort of a weird parallel with games i think um not for a minute saying we need to treat our uh, tables like like a classroom of children but i think that that that's a good point about principles about how it's it gives you a bit more it's it's broader than a rule but it also gives you a bit more focus it does yeah it's weird the degree to which teaching and being a game master overlap uh the skills from one almost map directly onto the other yes uh, definitely I, I know i know i know what you mean about principles in classrooms because we had to do the same thing when we were setting up our classrooms and our, our headmaster was like if you have like a list of specific things that they're not going to do then you're just setting up the expectation that you know that this is supposed to be gamed uh and yes we'll immediately try and game it and we'll try and find the way around the rules but if you have principles where it's like um if you cause a problem in my classroom i will do something about it um then it's just very vague but uh everyone knows where the line is and they have good expectations and you're establishing the the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law and having that kind of spirit of the law established just it gets everyone on the same page they're thinking in the same way so they're mm. not trying to take advantage of each other or taking advantage of the rules and it fosters a spirit of cooperation both in a classroom or at a gaming table and it kind of connects back to the sort of one of the osr uh, mantras of rulings not rules uh, i hadn't really considered a osr style teaching before yeah no there's there's so much <laughs> oh, so much overlap it's really funny um especially as i got better at teaching over time and i was reading all of these osr principles and they just kept seeming exactly the same like uh one thing that we kept being taught at school from all these coaches is teaching logical consequences if the consequences for poor behavior by a student are arbitrary or you know not consistently enforced or you know don't match what they did wrong then yeah. it's much harder to enforce discipline. And it's just the same thing in games. If uh, a player does something bizarre and off the wall, um, you know, just logical consequences. What would reasonably happen from that? And you just you just keep moving and hopefully they learn or maybe they don't, but uh, the world is responding realistically to their actions. And it's much easier to learn in an environment like that. Yeah, and having, I think one of the, one of the principles in Electric Bastion Man that I... I tried to. I don't mention it explicitly in the the sort of running the game section, but it's it's sort of very much in a focus there. And then later on, at the back of the book, I I have a sort of short uh, a short essay about it. Is the idea of information choice and impact? And as you were talking, it's like it's 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 weird how much that lines up with. Um, uh, we we can't talk about teaching for the full length of this thing, but this will be the last one. I promise. Um, I remember. Um, sort of the idea that uh having multiple stages of when you've got a pupil that's that's misbehaving you have to give you have to tell them what's going to happen so you say well if you carry on um if you carry on setting that fire in the corner of the classroom then you're going to have to be taken out of out of school um so you sort of give them the information give them the choice and then make sure that the impact is relevant to that choice and it's exactly the same with role-playing games if, if they don't have the information and if the impact of their choice is random. It's really hard to to feel like it's a fair system. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of uh, just to sort of get onto Electric Bastion Land, 
one of the things that I did for the uh, the conductor advice, I, I've used conductor rather than GM, but now that I have to say it out loud, it's really, I'm, I'm starting to wonder about it, but um, I, I stand by my decision. <laughs> I, I allowed myself one one stupid pretentious decision for the book. and It's uh, an age-old I, tradition. you got to name your DM something strange. Yeah, exactly. And I, I used referee. I, I think, oh, you have game master in... Um, in uh, maze traps what did you use in nave did you have game master still i think i used referee um yeah yeah and the thing is i think people just use what they're going to use so i will probably still keep saying gm just because i'm so used to it but um this this is why i would like someone brand new to think of it so uh, i'm going to say conductor for the for the purpose of this podcast so for the conductor's advice um section i really wanted to think about what is actually useful for the GM to have at the table. And when you're running the game, what do you find are the most useful bits of advice? So obviously there's sort of GM advice that you read ahead of the game while you're preparing. But mm-hmm. when, when you're running the game, other than the, other than the, uh, the sort of adventure that you prepared, what do you like to have in front of you as, in terms of something that would help the GM? Uh, so usually it's just concrete content to use in the game um so things like uh creatures or traps and so on but boiled down to a very simple format where i can easily look at it and process it and then use it in play um i don't like having to flip back and look at long stat blocks or detailed descriptions um same thing with like room descriptions um i think that's probably the biggest thing Hmm. um and just like a procedure of play especially if i'm doing something like a dungeon crawl um having a clear set of like steps that I go through yes, um, so that I know like where we are, what is the next step? And like, so the, and the players understand that too. So they understand from a strategic angle, um, how they're using their actions in an efficient or inefficient way. Yeah. Um, I often lose track of that when I'm running stuff. And something I've, something I've always heard role-playing books compared to is, when you're sort of thinking about the layout and things like that one one of it's it's not really like a textbook and it's not really it's nothing like a novel one of the closest things i guess is like a cookbook really mm-hmm. um it's not a perfect fit but there's definitely something there and i had any this this week i was sort of cuz 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 i'm locked in my house now with my partner we were like right we need we need to we need something nice to eat we're going to bake these biscuits we're going to find recipe for like chocolate biscuits something dead simple and uh uh, we're gonna we're gonna make these really quickly, and I found typed it into Google, you know, chocolate biscuit recipe. First result that comes up, I'll click on it, fine. And because this is just the, the style of blogs now, um, you have to have somebody's a giant anecdote about why they made these biscuits. <laughs> and, yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, cookies, I should say, rather than uh, rather than uh, not not your sort of biscuits and gravy biscuits, but um, the. And it was it was just really frustrating, and this was a this was obviously a, a very <laughs> it was a very easy thing to overcome. I just sort of scroll through, scroll through, scroll through, trying to find the um, get to the point. And I'm thinking, look, just just tell me tell me what I need to weigh out, and tell me what I need to do in a bullet points of of the recipe. Yeah, I've had the exact same experience. My wife does a lot of cooking. I don't do a lot of cooking, and she doesn't do a lot of role playing. But like something that we can bond over is like information design. Especially yes. she collects cookbooks, I collect role playing games, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the crossover is, again, pretty intense where you just look at some of these cookbooks or especially these blogs and it's like, could you have organized this in a worse way just where nothing is in the right place or you have to read through a lot of stuff first or um, a lot of cookbooks designed where there's 
the, the information is just spread out weirdly or over multiple pages, or you learn about stuff, you know, before or after the best place to learn about it was. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the analogy would be when you're, when you're running a game, because obviously when you're using a cookbook, if you think you're going to cook this certain recipe, you, at least you can look at it before time and you can set it down and you, you might even sketch out the main bits you need on a separate piece of paper. But when you're running a game with four or five players, it's like the equivalent of if you were running a restaurant and you only had a cookbook to go off. So when an order comes in and they want um, they want their um, certain certain meal to be made, they want their uh, lamb biryani made a certain way. And then you've got to you've got to flick to the cookbook and you've got to make it in the moment before the customer walks away and loses interest. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of role playing game books um, work under that that kind of system where it's it's not always easy to get what you need at the at the moment. So I really tried to get as much as I could onto onto a spread, so that in theory you could just pop the page open and it's everything you need there. And that there's quite a lot of quite a lot of blank space on the on the page. Um, which is there for a reason to make it easier to sort of pick out the bits of information that you need. There's no no giant wall of text to find, and it's right. it's it's certainly different, I think, to what I've seen in a lot of other role playing game books. There's certainly um, ones that are doing it, but I think the biggest influence for me from Maze Rats, particularly, was um, I'm sure you've heard the same thing a thousand times, but all of these tables that are in there, mm-hmm. um, the sort of the sort of two d six tables, if you like. So it's uh, thirty six results for um say factions in a city and that that single page if i've got the sort of city page open on in maze rats that single page is so much more useful for me if i was going to run a city game than say a book on um i can't even think of a a dnd city uh but Baldur's gate there we go that's one um a sort of a giant um a giant sort of source book covering every detail of a city because it's if if you're trying to run the game in the moment and you're not you ne- haven't necessarily got a lot of time to plan, it's a lot better I think to just be able to get a spark of an idea and run with it. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm giving you partial credit for the spark tables that made it throughout this book because they were definitely uh, very much inspired by Maze Rats. Yeah, I, I found those to be really really useful, especially when kids are learning to run the game for the first time. Because I've definitely just handed kids a copy of Maze Rats, kind of flipped to the the dungeon spread, and be like, make a dungeon. You know, if you get stuck, there's, you know, several hundred ideas here and there's just enough ideas that they can combine them and then they put their own twists on them. And rather than giving them like a a whole tome on like the art of dungeon design, just by giving them lots of little kernels of an idea, they can very quickly spin their own um, dungeon into existence. So, yeah, that's that sort of thing is incredibly helpful. And it's that kind of encouraging creativity. I think with, with a lot of setting books, particularly, there's. There's the sort of overbearing idea that you need to learn the setting, you need to you need to run it mm-hmm. right, and Maze Rats is sort of at the other extreme where there's there's an implied setting in here, you know, from the, from the the content of the tables, but um, not a, your, your city in here. This this sort of nameless city, it, it could be it'll be different to everyone's table. Um, so there's some there's some flavour there, but there's it's not a specific city, and what I really wanted to do was hit a kind of middle ground where you've still got that freedom and the idea that there's not a there's no canonical answer to uh, to Bastion, to questions about Bastion or questions mm-hmm. about Deep Country. Um, but there's still, it's just a tighter focus slightly than the sort of, uh, the sort of very broad um, ideas that were, in, that were in Maze Rats. 
how do you find that your um i mean it, it can be adults or children that you play with uh, how do you find that they respond to this kind of open creativity i think they respond to it really well um a, a good thing to get people thinking creatively is to give them enough content that they have like a starting point and that they can branch off of because if you just tell someone to make a city or make a world like you have total freedom you can do anything that you want uh a lot of people kids or adults will just kind of freeze up because that's just yeah. too much of a possibility space but like what what from I've seen of uh, Electric Bastion Land, what it does really well is that it is fairly minimalistic, but it gives you a lot of very concrete like anchor points that you can build off of. Um, and then so you have something to start with and then you start mentally connecting those things together in your head. And then the way that those things make sense together or are connected ends up uh, becoming what your Bastion Land is. Yeah, it's um, anchor points is a really good idea. I wish I'd had that phrase before. I could have uh, could have slipped that into the book and sounded really uh, like a proper designer. But um, but yeah, so I think the the Spark Tables are a really clear example. I think of what I was going for. Well, there's the Spark Tables, which are you you roll two d twenty and it gives you a result for each of the d twenties, and that might give you um, two things that you combine that might fit very well together or might juxtapose each other and that gives you at least your starting point for the for the uh for the idea but the other thing was these touchstones which are sort of it this is much more in the style of your sort of d6 by d6 tables where there's it's d8 by d4 so i've changed just enough that i don't quite look like i'm stealing your idea directly <laughs> um you've got a sort of eight categories and then four four entries within each of the categories and these these sort of touchstones are, are things that people care about and things that people might be talking about in different areas of the world so for instance in deep country the categories are things like isolation something we can all relate to uh mm-hmm. wildness history pettiness ignorance and then within each of those you've got four uh sort of four more specific ideas of things that someone might be uh, interested in so under ignorance you've got disbelief of bastion you've got backlash against technology you've got bad medicine which i don't explain anymore and uh superstition so if you've got a character and you roll that their touchstone is backlash against technology immediately you've got something very it is still just the seed of an idea but it also tells you something about the world they live in that this is a common thing um or disbelief of bastion that people in deep country they just don't believe that bastion exists because it sounds ridiculous um mm-hmm. so yeah i think that like you say that's 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 the way to encourage creativity and i think um so far touchwood it's been a quite a good response to it in terms of what is not useful advice for a gm i'm very happy to just rail on other systems for a while but i think we're probably better than that <laughs> is there anything that you think is commonly included in sort of running the game sections that you find for yourself just isn't useful at all i don't know if it's so much um like bad advice as as it is stuff that's missing most of the advice that you see is is fine apart from the advice where it's like try to you know balance out the player's choices with your intended story that's always terrible advice yeah um you you do see that a lot that's always a problem because it gives people the wrong idea i think um but oftentimes it's just missing these like short, concrete, really practical pieces of advice that you would need to run the game efficiently. The sort of things that like an experienced uh, game master is thinking in their head. That's like what I try and think about when I'm writing advice is that like if I was really good at this game, um, what are the things that I'm thinking about when I'm running it? 
Like what would an expert be thinking about? Yeah. And then trying to codify that into pieces of advice that people can use. Um, because I think that's that's the real trick to being a game master is having like the right mental state and sort of seeing the whole and figuring out what the next good piece to, to slot in there is while the game is running. And that's hard to communicate unless you're like just trying to get in the head of a good game master. And I think even if the advice isn't missing, it's sometimes very hard to find it because, um, I mean, the, the obvious example would be something like D&D where you've got a separate Dungeon Master's Guide. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a huge book in its own right. It's a big 300-page hardback book, The Dungeon Master's Guide. And it's it's full of tables and it's full of magic items and it's full of um, it's full of more rules that you need to learn. So there's there's always advice in there. But I have certainly found that for me, I've just not absorbed it because I've been kind of overwhelmed by the rest of the book. So, mm-hmm. um, it, in fact, interestingly, you're you're currently doing your read through of the first edition D and D Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, yeah, how are you finding that? As a is is this your first? I take it it's not your first read through of the book. It is my first read through. I've flipped oh, wow. through it before. I've never actually like delved into it in any kind of systematic way before. So it's been interesting. You get to see my reactions in real time. Uh, <laughs> it is a really weird mixed bag. Uh, it's in, extremely contradictory. Uh, where Gary seems to just wildly swing back and forth between different ideas. Uh, there's a lot of really great pieces of world building in there. I think some of the stuff I ran into that was cool was um, just like lists of different types of gems and like the legendary magical effects that they're supposed to have, which may or may not be true. <laughs> there's great little bits like that. Um, but there's also things where it's like, I've created Advanced Dungeons and Dragons that there is a you know rigid, systematized way to play D&D and everyone should be using this. And then a paragraph later, he'll be like, but it's your game and do whatever you want. Yeah. And yeah. then it goes it goes back and forth like that through the whole book. And it's very hard to sort of take away from it how exactly you would run the game or what you would be thinking. And it's I, I can see. So I, I've um, only got a, I only got a copy of the book uh, maybe maybe five years ago. Um, I certainly didn't play it at the time, um, and it was like you say. It's it's the the main thing that leapt out at me were you'd go from looking at something and thinking, oh, that's a really cool, inspiring idea that makes me want to come up with new new ideas myself, and then the next paragraph mm-hmm. would be a lecture about how something is absolutely set in stone and like you mustn't you know the the, the classic one is that uh strict time records must be kept and, and all this yes stuff. <laughs> um so yeah the, the the tone is um is all over the place so in terms of electric bastion land just to completely catch you off guard have you had a chance to look through the pdf very much yet i have flipped through it a bit yeah was there anything that you wanted to ask about the book um on behalf of the listeners of this commentary I don't know about to ask per se. It seems like it's very easy to understand what's going on. That was very much the goal. The, the, the thing that I'm, I've always been, the thing that with Maze Rats that I think you, you, you sort of did that I, I was really happy to see was the idea that you were giving this to people as their first RPG. And with, with Into the Odd, I, I designed it in a way that I wanted it to be that if somebody did just pick up a copy of this book, they could... They could run it, and they they could they could run with it and and have have fun and play it. And I'm very realistic that if you if you manage to get to the point where you'd heard of my little into the odd game, you must have played D and D and you must have played RPGs at some point. So I don't know how often that happens. So I think the fact that you got to give you know just print out copies of this and give it to 
um, give it to some of the kids at your school to to be their introduction to role playing games is is really really exciting. And with Electric Bastion Land, because it's going to be a much bigger, you know, more expensive book, I was I was sort of doubly um, um, convinced that this was going to be no one's first RPG. But I still wanted to write it in that way that somebody could just pick it up and even if even if it took them a while to make sense of it because roleplay games are generally um, they can be a bit of a tricky thing to get your head around if you've not played them before but I wanted it to be something that they could in theory pick up and play as their first game. I mean every RPG is someone's first RPG even if it's not you know generally the case someone is going to give Electric Bastion Land to someone who has never played RPGs before um, it's just going to happen so you need to be thinking about those people and how they would get onboarded to the hobby as easily as possible. Hmm. And it might, you know, being a, being a bigger book might even uh, be more likely to catch someone's eye. I suppose um, that's the other side of it. Um, I mean, the the good thing about Into the Art was we had uh, we had an issue with the first print run where um, it basically just the cover came out wrong. So all, all the contents were were fine, but we essentially ended up with the wrong cover and it wasn't even just that it was subtly wrong it was that there was a load of text on the back that wasn't meant to be there and it just it just wasn't right so we, we got a, we decided to get another print run done um with the correct cover and the, the misprints we sent an extra copy to each person that had ordered it um mm. and we called it the friendship edition where the idea being <laughs> can you should give it to somebody you know that might want to play an rpg or my, my real hope, but I didn't really want to encourage this because I'm not sure how much trouble it would get me in. My real hope would be that you should, people should just leave it in, in bookshops and leave it in, um, in cafes and things like that so that somebody might just pick it up. Because I'm always, I'm always interested by the idea of what somebody makes of these sorts of games if they, if they haven't been exposed to it before. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting thought. I really hope we don't have a. Um, I really hope we don't have an issue with the covers on this uh, this print run because it, it won't necessarily work quite as well when you're talking about a 300 page hardback. It's a uh, it's not oh, going to be. It's not going to be quite as possible for me to just ship two of them to each people, each person. That's a. <laughs> that would be a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Yikes. I mean, e- even if you have um, someone running the game who's already experienced with RPGs, having a book that is really good at explaining how to play and what these games are and how to run them, it means that the players can more quickly transition to being game masters. Uh, even if it's not their very first game, it can be yeah. a game that gets them into game mastering that's um that's really interesting and that's i would love to see the sort of conversion rates if you like between certain systems because i do still hear about i think i think i when i first found out about D when i was you know a kid and when i first sort of dipped into this sort of game basically through necessity the first few times i did it i think i think i ran a game before i played a game just because I was the I was the one who was getting into it, and I was trying to convince my friends to try this sort of thing out. But I, I still hear about people who who play and don't take the plunge into running a game, and it's just such a. It, uh, this isn't at all meant to be a slight on those people, but it, when I say it's a strange mindset, I mean I can't imagine not wanting to run a game. I love playing games as well, but um, it's interesting how some systems people don't seem to want to take the jump. There's some sort of block there. And it'd be really interesting to see which systems have the best conversion rate where players are sort of jumping over to to run their own games. Yeah, it needs to be the kind of game that can demonstrate and just make really transparent uh, that it isn't as difficult as you think. 
Uh, yes. A lot of people are, I think, are really, really intimidated by the idea of trying to run a whole world all at once. Um, the way that I always do it with my my uh, kids at school is I for a while I ran one page dungeons with them. So it would just be I would run the one page dungeon. It would take you know, maybe a couple sessions because each session was only like an hour or so. Hmm. And then when I was done, I would give them the one page dungeon. Ah. I'd be like, this this is what I ran the game off of. It was one piece of paper. There's a picture I drew of some rooms here. I have notes in the margins. And that is literally all I used to run it. And then they can see like what I actually needed to do in order to, to play the game. So it made it much less intimidating for them because they realized, oh, I can draw a picture of some rooms connected together. I can think of some monsters and put them in there. And that's all that Mr. Milton needed to do. So I can do it too. And it, I think it got kids over that hump of feeling like it was intimidating really quickly. And one of the bits of advice that I give, so there's, I've got a little section on um, mapping for each of the regions of the world. So um, so drawing a map of Bastion is a lot like drawing a, sort of an underground rail network. You're just doing sort of nodes and lines, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I ask people to do, it's, it's sort of the, the third line on the page, is um, to write as many of your notes directly onto the map as you can manage, uh, keeping only overflow information on a separate sheet. Because I think if you're a player and you see the, you see the, the GM and they're, you know, they're behind their screen, and they've got a binder full of sheets and they've got all these notes spread out and all these tables and formulas. It's, yeah, I can see why people would think, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But if all they've got is, you know, a nice big A3 uh, piece of paper with a cool map on it and loads of notes scrawled on it, um, that's, that's sort of just a blown up version of a uh, one-page dungeon, essentially. So I'd, I'd definitely like to see more of that sort of stuff out there. Yeah, one-page dungeons are something I'd definitely like to... Uh, to explore in future yeah in terms of um just before we move on to the sort of before we sort of close up um if you could give one piece of gm advice this is going to put you on the spot now um but if you could give one piece of gm advice that you think is the most useful perhaps the one that you remember being the most useful for you for running a good game what would be the one piece of advice you give oh gosh uh, didn't warn you about one this one, did piece I? Of advice. No, <laughs> not to think on my feet. A, a lot of it is to step back from my preconceived notions of how the session should go. Um, and I still fall into like that trap every once in a while. But I really have had to step back to because I'd be running the game and I'd constantly be worrying, oh, is this tense enough? Is it not? You know, should I reduce the, the tension? Should I add more danger? Oh, this player could die and that's going to not be fun anymore. And learning to step back and be more like a player at the table, where it's just like, we're all here having fun doing this and good things are ha- going to happen and bad things are going to happen. And I don't really have any control over it. I'm just going to try and make it fair and uh, try and keep things consistent and challenge you guys. And then we'll just see what happens. Uh, that was probably the biggest leap forward that I made game mastering. Um, and I think that's one that takes a long t- time for people to get over because like, there's the idea that as a game master, you are like the primary entertainer at the table. Hmm. And if things go badly, then it is your fault. Um, and certainly it's, you know, you're partially responsible, but it takes away from the idea of just group fun where everyone is a player at the table um, working together to create this experience and everything isn't necessarily on you. Um, and that allowing players to make their own choices and just trusting that something interesting will come of it 
or that players are creative enough to make something interesting out of whatever happens yeah was a, a big game changer for me and one of the that really nicely lines up you've really sort of put into words something i've been trying to to get across so you know i joked about saying that i chose the word conductor just to be like pretentious but um the reason i changed it because in into the odd i used referee and at the time i was i was very happy with that because i thought you know that i want i want to the thing that i was trying to push was the idea that you were neutral you were a neutral sort of arbiter of the rules to some extent and you know referee was a good fit but what i wanted to change shift the focus slightly was the i was this idea that you are you are a player like you are playing the game you you are you know you're in in some degree you're a host in some degree you are a referee and you're making calls but you are still a player you're just a different type of player and you're playing with slightly different rules than the the other players are and you've got slightly different responsibilities but um yeah so that there's a little essay i put at the back saying why conductor so why, why did i choose the word and the, the bottom two lines of it are most of all remember that the conductor is a player they should be having just as much fun as the others and yeah that's that sort of lines up nicely with what you said um the other thing actually just to go on a slight tangent that you mentioned is that what you've just described sort of lines up quite quite neatly with one of the apocalypse world um principles it may not be a principle. Is it a gender principle? It's got so much terminology, I forget which one's which. But um, yeah. one of their principles is play to find out what happens. Mm-hmm. And it's at, at the risk of being an OSR heretic. I think that's <laughs> that's a that's a really fantastic um, principle to to run the game by. And I'll do a quick plug for the blog ne- Necropraxis, where um, Brendan wrote an article about um, sort of osr and apocalypse world principles and how they line up but yeah i think i think that 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 idea of you are a player and you're you're gonna have you need to be in the moment in the game and not not go in with preconceptions is is really powerful yeah the one thing i've been asking a few of the guests um about the book in a slightly self-indulgent manner is um of all the failed careers that are in there do you have anything that especially leapt out at you is there is there one that you saw and you thought if i was going to be playing electric bastion and that's the one that i would like i wish i could uh, roll up um if that is putting you on the spot too much you are very welcome to roll a d100 and be randomly assigned a failed <laughs> career I was flipping through them recently, and I like so many of them. Uh, one of them that did jump out to me was, I think, there was one where it was like a chimney sweep. And what stood out to me was the way that the the debt that you are, your whole party is in uh, was for the funeral of a parent. So just with that one line, suddenly everyone in the party is a family member. Yes. And suddenly the, the whole dynamic of the party just shifts. Because like, oh, why on earth are these you know four or five weirdos siblings and then you have to build off of that. I really loved that aspect of it, uh, just because it, the way that it twisted the whole dynamic of the party in just one sentence. Yeah, and those I I really tried to get as many of those in as possible in the in the debt holders. Um, I didn't. I'm not going to say that all 110 of them, you know, radically change the game. Sometimes you just end up with a pig, and that's what you get. Um, yeah. But but with quite a few of them, I really wanted the idea that it would make your game extremely different to another group. Um, even if that group rolled the exact same set of failed careers, but you had a different debt holder, 
it would make it feel different. And um, mm-hmm. and yeah, that, that was interesting because I really wanted to stress as well. So the the debt that you just mentioned is it's on number 46, The Apprentice Sweep. And um, okay. it's sod, sod up burials. Um, and the debt is for a parent's funeral. Whether through blood or not, you are all siblings to each other. And that's another one where I've made it very, left it very open. So there's more than one way to be a sibling to someone. So if you do end sure. up with a mockery and an alien and uh, somebody who's half machine and a pack of street urchins, you might think, <laughs> how are these, what sort of household do all these come from? Um, it, 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 it provokes a question that you have to come up with a nice creative answer for. Yeah. Yeah. So this one actually was really, this one came up quite early on, the apprentice sweep and a chimney sweep seems like a very obvious career for um, for this sort of era of setting. But I I made it quite clear that you're not necessarily a chimney sweep. You are a sweep of something. And uh, one of them is chimneys, but then you also might be a sewer sweep or a railway line sweep or a bookshelf sweep or a gruel chute sweep or a kennel <laughs> sweep. And um, gruel is one of those words that I... I think I had to go through and take out a few gruels because I was using gruel too much because I think it's just one of my favorite words to say or use. It just tells you so much that gruel exists in this world. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Ben, for joining me on this one. And it's been really interesting to hear your sort of insights and uh, the sort of the parallels between between this book and the things that you've been working on. Thanks for inviting me. This has been really fun. And next week, if you want to uh, listen again, I will be joined by Sean McCoy, and we will be discussing the setting of Electric Bastion Land. So thanks again, Ben. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>